This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. And we're following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. Here's our own Alex Cortez with our 20th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. The Corps of Discovery is still wintering among the Mandan Indians and Joseph Whitehouse reports the singular focus on their minds. Tuesday, January 22nd. This day, all our men who were at the fort were employed to cut the ice in order to get the boat and pirogues out of the river. In the night, we had a heavy fall of snow, which made it difficult to work in the ice. You know, they didn't have to work in the ice. These guys stopped for winter in late October. Why didn't they take their boats out of the water then when there was no snow and no ice? Here's Clay Jenkinson. I just puzzled over the fact that they were absolutely depended upon these craft to move any further. And they were really putting them in jeopardy by leaving them in the river all that time. Now, they did have some good reasons, like building sleeping quarters to protect them from the raw cold that they'd have to endure. They knew the temperature would be bad, but they didn't know that it would get to minus 40. None of them had ever experienced the North Dakota winter before, so they didn't know how unbearably cold it can get and how serious the ice dams and the thickness of the ice would be on the Missouri River. They were used to the Ohio and the James and the Rappahannock and the Potomac, and they had no idea what it would be like to try to winter several watercraft on a subarctic river near today's Canadian border. But they sure found out. Nevertheless, no use complaining about their stupid mistake now on to somehow digging these boats out of ice. Here's Sergeant Ordway on what happened during attempt number one, cutting the ice. The water gushed over where they had cut, so they had to quit. And William Clark went on to note that there was even more ice underneath that water. And this put the men's health in danger, too, because if you suddenly get soaked with surging water and you're up to your knees, maybe, is completely soaked with this slush, this icy slush, you have to get to a fire instantly, or it's going to be a kind of a Jack London scene in which you're going to get at least frostbite and maybe much worse. Move it on to attempt number two. Wednesday, 23rd January hauled stones on a sled, which they made warm in a fire, in order to thaw the ice from about the said boats. When the stones were put into the fire, they would not stand the heat of the fire. The rocks explode because there's so much moisture in them that the heat actually just creates a kind of almost a piece of rock dynamite out of them. All of them broke, so their labor was lost. On to attempt number three, which, as William Clark said, was attempt number one <laughs> all over again. 
25th of January. Men employed in cutting the boat out of the ice. And for several days, more of the same. Attempt to cut our boat and canoes out of the ice. A difficult task. And then came attempt number four, which Sergeant Ordway said was a twist on attempt number one with the use of a new instrument. 28th, January. Got large pry bars and attempted to shake her loose, but found we could not move her. But they did move on to attempt number five. On January 29th, William Clark said it was the same as number two, the heating of stones. But of course, with a twist, instead of the hot stones warming the ice, they would warm the boats. With a view of warming water in the boat, and by that means, separate her from the ices. And also, of course, it had the same result. Our attempt appears to be defeated by the stones all breaking and flying to pieces in the fire. It doesn't matter where you place the stones. They don't exist. Silly Clark. On to attempt number six, which according to Sergeant Ordway was also a twist on attempt number two, the heating of stones. But this time with a different kind of stone. 30th, January. Sergeant Gas sent up the river to another bluff in order to look for another kind of stone that would not split with heat. But it did. Found it was the same kind as the other. As soon as it was hot, burst asunder. So we gave up the plan. All right, we've been having some fun here. It's like one of those moments we've all had where it's definitely not fun in the moment, but it is after. It sounds funny to us because we know that it came out successfully, but it must have been incredibly frustrating to all of them. And there must have been some muttering. I would guess that some of the men would have said to each other if Lewis and Clark were not nearby. Don't you think that maybe we should have done this back in November? And when they did finally get those boats out of the ice, it really was to no credit of their own. In the end, the river really gave up the boats before they could extricate them in any meaningful way. To the extent that they had endeavored to do all this, they did some pretty considerable damage to the three boats. And what a terrific story. Things you just don't think about. Well, when you're the first, you find things out that, well, you didn't know. And this was a big one. The absolute dreadful nature of the weather in places like North Dakota in the winter. And if you're listening in places like that, you know what I'm talking about. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the most epic road trip ever. Great work, as always, Alex, on this. And thank you to Clay Jenkinson, our expert on all things Lewis and Clark. And you can learn more about him and his work at ClayJenkinson.com. That's ClayJenkinson.com.
is Our American Stories, where we talk about every walk of American life, from sports to the arts to history. And my goodness, business. We spend so much of our lives at work. And, well, one of the world's biggest employers, a company called Walmart. They employ an astounding 2.1 million people. And in the United States alone, the company employs 1.4 million. This is a staggering 1% of the U.S. 100... This is a staggering 1% of the United States' 140 million working population. Oftentimes, the face of the company is the first person to greet you as you walk in the door. So we wanted to take a moment and look into the lives of a few of those Walmart greeters. Here's Jesse. You know, I bet every single one of us has had to say hi to the Walmart greeter at least one point or another in our lives. It's a great way for the old-timers to connect with the community, to stay active, and to make a little money. Bill Rabe is a greeter at the Walmart Supercenter in Madison, Ohio. He likes to bring a little music into his greeting with the violin or ukulele. Hi, guys! Part of the philosophy, obviously, of the company was... uh, if you make the customer happy coming in and make them happy going out, they'll come back again. And so that was the greeter's job, and that's what Brian told me. I said, well, okay, uh, let's get them happy. So for the heck of it, I brought in the uke and started playing uke, and people sort of liked that. And one of uh, the young high school students uh, wanted to learn how to play uke, so I taught him some chords and things, and before long, conversation was that his grandfather had a violin, and would I teach him how to play the violin? And I, and I said, sure. So I brought in my violin and let him use that, and I played viola, and on break times, why we just sort of horse around up there, and the people were amazed, and, and it just evolved into that. Customers that try to mess around with name that tune with me, and so we sort of horse around with that a little bit. And, and I play when I see little kids, I do Itsy Bitsy Spider and Wheels on the Bus. And, and if I see a good looking girl, and a lot of them come in here, I play Let Me Call You Sweetheart. And, You'll find that most Walmart greeters around the 5,000 stores across the country are a unique blend of characters, like Lois Spielman, who celebrated her 100th birthday at Walmart. I just enjoy people. That's what keeps me going. If, uh, if, if I didn't have Walmart, I don't think I'd have made it. And then there's 70-year-old tattooed covered George Cornwell in Aurora, Illinois. I'm retired. I just work part-time and enjoy it very much and enjoy making people happy and make, put big smiles on their face and trying to enjoy life. There's been quite a few people say they wouldn't come here if it wasn't for me. You know. Yeah! <laughs> Have a wonderful evening. Thank you, ma'am. A lot of people ask me, so how come you're so happy and smile? And I said, you believe in the good Lord, you're going to be happy. You know, and I try to I cheer people up, you know. 
got to enjoy life. Let bygones be bygones and carry on from there. And enjoy Walmart. <laughs> Come in, you guys. Enjoy your day. Welcome. Hello. Have fun. Hey, everybody. Have a good day, y'all. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. But there's one Walmart greeter that's brought more attention to the Walmart brand than any other. A video of Mr. Willie Perkins went viral after he was seen introducing himself and describing how he does what he does for a living. My name is Willie, Mr. Willie. All right now. And what I do is when people's come in, uh, uh, what's the word for? I greet them. And I tell them, how are they doing? And if they have children, I will ask them how the kids doing. And most of the time, they'll come up and they want a band. What's a band? A band? Bam! Bam! Okay. Give me a band. Bam! That's a band. Bam okay. is the sound that Willie makes when he gives you a fist bump as you're leaving or entering the Walmart where he works. Bam! That's another band. In the town of Maumelle, Arkansas. The video has been seen by millions of people and even has its own musical remix made from his spoken word. My name is Willie, Mr. Willie, Mil Mil Mr. Willie. And what I do is when people come in, I greet them and I tell them how they doing. I will ask them how the kids doing. Most of the time they'll come up and they want a band. What's a band? That's the band. Bam! That's another band. And what I do, and what I do, what's the word for? What's the word for? Bam! That's the band. Now, Mr. Willie here isn't just the local Walmart greeter who happened to go viral online with his friendly demeanor. He also happens to be a firebrand Pentecostal preacher on the side. Here he is behind the pulpit on Sunday morning. God is a good God. I tell him that all the time, Char. God, you is good. I don't deserve what all you have did for me. Here I am done went from zero to 79. And you have taken care of me. And I can still walk out of my door and kick the screen door open and walk out. You've been good to me. You're going to have ups and downs. Don't worry about it. Stick with it. That's why we got God. He is able to solve all our problems. He just tell us to believe him. When Jesus came down here on earth, he proved that many and many times. Have faith in his word. Oh boy, when you get to heaven, everybody's got a smile on their face. I'm saying that, but I'm sure it is, because they's in heaven. I know I'm going to have a smile on my face. Mr. Willie even caught the attention of the top brass at Walmart. They liked him so much that they let him introduce the CEO at the 2017 Walmart Shareholders Convention. My name is Willie Perkins. Associate 
store 4460 Marmel, Arkansas. First of all, I've already figured out the only thing anybody's going to remember about today is Willie. <laughs> and I'm good with that. Mr. Willie has been delighting his customers for almost 10 years. The kids call him the Bam Man. Some people call him Mr. Willie. He has eight kids. One of his daughters, Gwen's here with him today. Wave, Gwen. Say hi, everybody. Hello, everybody. He has 19 grandkids. He's been married for 60 years. To one woman, to one woman he says. <laughs> now, what I, what, I, what I didn't know until just like this week is that he was also formerly a preacher, if you couldn't tell. God is good. God is good. And he's a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. And those are just a few of the people who work as Walmart greeters across America. And this is Our American Stories. My name is Willie. Mr. Willie. Mil Mil Mr. Willie. And what I do is when people come in. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to a song about James Dean, because on this day in history, in 1931, James Dean was born. And so for the next two segments, for the next 30 minutes, we're going to talk about James Dean's life. We're going to start with his death. On September 30th, 1955, James Dean was driving his brand new $7,000 Porsche Spider along California Route 466. At 5.45 p.m., the 24-year-old actor was killed when he hit a Ford sedan at an intersection. Only one of Dean's movies, East of Eden, had been released at the time of his death. Rebel Without a Cause and Giant opened shortly afterwards. But he was already on his way to superstardom, and the crash, well, it made him a legend. His performances in East of Eden and Giant earned him back-to-back -back nominations for Best 
leading actor. Here's James Dean's close friend, legendary actor Martin Landau. Jimmy represented something at that moment in time. Uh, he became an icon. Up until that moment, grown-ups set the styles and fashions, the music, the clothing. After World War II, a different kind of thing started happening when the young men came back from the war who survived it. A different kind of animal that represented unrest and dissatisfaction with the status quo. And Jimmy's early television work and his movies, all three movies, represented a young American who was not happy with his lot and the way things were. Here's director Elia Kazan, who at the time had just finished shooting On the Waterfront, starring Marlon Brando, and was preparing to shoot James Dean's first film, East of Eden. There he was. And I had an intuition. I said, this is Cal. This is, this is the guy right here. He, uh, he did a thing that always attracts me. He wasn't polite to me. And that always sort of makes me feel he's not, not straining to butter, you know, to butter me up right like that. He has a real, uh, a real sense of himself. Oh, he said, I'll take you for a ride in my motorbike, which is, he was, it was very hard for him to talk. And riding me on the back of his motorbike, which I did like in the streets of New York, was his way of communicating with me, of saying, well, I hope you like me or look at my skills or whatever. So then, so <laughs> he had his own, you saw what he's like, he had his own way. And, uh, I thought it was perfect for the part. I mean, I, I, I thought it was an extreme grotesque of a boy. I thought it was a twisted boy. And I thought, twisted by the denial of love. And it turned out, as I got to know his father and I got to know about his family, that he had been, in fact, twisted by the denial of love. And boy, what a theme that is in East of Eden. And what a performance. If you ever get a chance, rent it if you haven't seen it. It's Dean at his best. And I think it changed acting as we know it. James Dean lost his mom to cancer when he was nine years old. He also lost his father, who immediately sent his son to live with his aunt and uncle on their farm in the small town of Fairmount, Indiana. Here again is Martin Landau setting up a scene from East of Eden. He understood pain. Young people usually don't have that kind of pain or don't wear it as externally. One of the things that made Jim noticed was his vulnerability. He understood a mother he didn't have. East of Eden was like a chance to meet his mother again, if one accepts that. Jim, your mother passed away, and it was unfortunate. She left this young boy motherless, and he had to be raised by a father who didn't understand him and an aunt and uncle on a farm. But we've arranged for you to spend a little time with your mother again. What do you think of that? Wow. There we are. Let me talk to you. Please. I gotta talk to you. And those scenes are very well acted. Because they ring Joe! true. Joe! Joe! Get out of here. Joe! Tex! Emotional pain. We respond and we cover it up. But 
It's hard to when it's there. Well, the truth of the matter is that Jimmy was haunted throughout his life, his short life, by his need for a father. His mother uh, abandoned him by dying when he was nine. When he went back to Indiana after his mother's death, his father promised to be there. Of course, wasn't there. And so he was, uh, in a sense, an orphan. He was so desperate for the approval of his father. So Jimmy was left with a, with a, um, a gigantic hole in his personality, the hunger for a daddy for someone to connect with him, to nurture him and to take care of him and to guide him and to lead him. And by the way, it's a theme we touch on over and over again on this show. What happens to boys and girls without a father? Kazan saw how Dean related to his actual father prior to the beginning of East of Eden and was able to direct Dean to utilize that. Kazan saw the film as a documentary documenting Dean's psychological state. James Dean immersed himself in the role as Cal, who tries unsuccessfully to earn the love of his father, played by Raymond Massey. Here's a scene where Cal is asked by his father to read from the Bible. Dean knew that Raymond Massey was a devout Christian, and so he would curse under his breath in between takes to get the best reaction from Massey. Here's director Eliah Kazan. On the way to the studio, Jimmy said, can you stop here a minute? My father lives in there. We stop, and out comes a man that was as tense as Jimmy was. And they hardly could relate. They hardly could look at each other. It was the goddamnest reaffirmation of the hunch that I had that I've ever seen. They could hardly relate. They hardly talked. They mumbled at each other. And then Jimmy, I don't know what the hell he stopped to see him for, because in a few minutes he said, let's go. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgivest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Go on. Knowing Kazan, I know how he worked with him. Six. And I suggest a little slower, Cal, and you don't have to read the verse numbers. For this shall everyone that... He nurtured Jimmy. He gave him all the privilege that Jimmy needed and the freedom that Jimmy needed. I unto him. Sila. Seven. Not the numbers, Cal. And Raymond Massey, of course, being an old-fashioned uh, actor, uh, um, couldn't understand that kind of uh, actor-studio kind of uh, freedom. Eight. You have no repentance. You're bad. Through and through, bad. Dean was driving Raymond Massey crazy. You're right. I am bad. I knew that for a long time. He'd change the lines, he'd move positions, he'd, he would do, depending on how he felt at the moment. And it was driving Raymond Massey crazy, who went to Kazan and said, listen, I can't stand this boy, I don't know what the hell he's doing. He's saying not the lines that are in the script. I'm an actor, I say the lines that are written. And Kazan said, oh, I understand. I'll do my best, I'll, I'll talk to him, I'll straighten it out, don't worry. Then he goes to James Dean and says, listen, he's getting irritated. Keep it up. Keep it up because that's the color I want in the scene. I think at the end, Raymond Massey could have killed his own son. Indeed, 
And we're going to hear more of this remarkable story from the actors and the directors who knew James Dean. This day in history, James Dean, born in 1931. This is Our American Stories, and that's Bruce Springsteen's Adam Raised the Cane, and he wrote about father-son issues and continues to, and it makes him the songwriter he is, and James Dean was pursuing the same blood in the same vein, and that's that father, that absent father, and that's what East of Eden was all about. It was Cain and Abel's story, reworked, and Cain's offering is rejected by the father. And the distant father, Raymond Massey, the distant, unloving father in this particular case. And then what happens next? Well, rent the movie. See East of Eden. And when we left off, we had just talked about a scene in which Dean was just getting under Massey's skin and Elijah Kazan was letting him do it. And boy, it's there on the screen. See it. See it. It's all I can ask you to do. Here's James Dean's buddy and buddies on the release of this classic film. We're kind of just hanging and talking and uh he said you know let's go down to the egyptian theater and i said what's happening he says they're previewing east of eden he pulled his hat down he got his glasses on he turned his back you know to the crowd as they were coming out and he said cover me you know like i don't want people to see me basically so i kind of covered him and it to me, it was the same reaction when I walked out of my first Fellini movie. I was stunned. It was Jimmy, but it was... It was Jimmy gigantically. It was on this huge screen. And it was... The, the emotional impact was phenomenal. Some people couldn't talk, and they were, you know, the guy's brilliant genius. I mean, all these great things were being said, and, and some, you know, it was just like this whole moment happened, you know, and I was there with Jimmy when he saw it happen. And he says, it worked. He was like a little kid. He was really excited. He says, it worked, man, it worked. 
And it worked. And then there was the worldwide cultural earthquake from his second movie, Rebel Without a Cause, a film about a lonely young man struggling to fit in at a new high school. Here's the screenwriter, Stuart Stern. Along with everything else, Jimmy had that curious androgyny. See tomorrow. That made him appealing to so many people, disturbing to so many people. That began to eat away at these formal attitudes about what makes a man. And it was very important to me and Rebel to ask that question. Dean redefined masculinity on the big screen in that movie and, as a consequence, the world over. That redefinition had to do with his sensitive transparency and also his vulnerability. The old macho heroes were out. The emotionally available anti-heroes were in. Dean had given youth all over America a reason to cut loose from the stern, manly stereotype, and they did. There were two pillars in the 1950s. Elvis changed the music. James Dean changed our lives. Here's a young Elvis Presley being asked about James Dean. They predict that uh, uh, Elvis Presley will be another James Dean. Now, have you heard that? Uh, I've heard something about it. But uh, I would would never compare myself in any way to James Dean because James Dean was a genius. James Dean was a genius. Here's Dean's close friend and fellow actor from Rebel Without a Cause and Giant, Dennis Hopper, who passed away in 2010. My agent said, that's, that's James Dean. And I turned around and audibly said, that's James Dean? I, I at the time, thought I was the best young actor in the world. First time I saw Jimmy work was just, just amazing. I, I was a really uh, uh, very uh, proficient uh, uh, what I call the English school of acting, where I, I did line readings, gestures, uh, preconceived everything, knew exactly what I was going to do. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever seen anybody improvise or, or uh, create things that weren't on the written page. I was watching the work, and the work was incredible. So I, I didn't know what he was doing, but I wanted to know. And then on the Chicky Run... Uh, and uh, Rebel Without a Cause, I finally uh, physically grabbed him, threw him into the car, and I said, I've got to know what you're doing. Uh, how could he help me? How could he help me understand uh, to do this? He asked me, before he volunteered any information about the work, he asked me if I hated my mother and my father. And I thought this was strange question, you know. And uh, he said, you did, didn't you? And I said, well, yeah, I did. I, I resented them and I hated them. He said, they want you to do something else besides be an actor. And I said, yeah, they want me to be an engineer, lawyer, doctor, some, you know, anything but an actor. And he said, well, that's why you, you want to be an actor, because of that. And he said, I, I lost my mother when I was very young. And uh, when she first left me, I used to go to her grave. I used to sneak out and go to her grave and, and cry on her grave and say, Mother, Mother, why did you leave me? And that turned into, Mother, I hate you, I resent you, I'm going to show you, I'm going to be somebody, uh, I'm going to be great. And he said, you got to start learning how to do things and not show them. And I said, what does that mean, do something and not show it? And he said, well, like if you smoke a cigarette, you just got to... You've got to learn to smoke the cigarette, not act 
smoking a cigarette. Just smoke the cigarette. If you're drinking like a cup of coffee or, an, or a drink or whatever, you've got to drink the drink, not act drinking the drink. And if you're looking, you've got to look. The easiest thing to do is to act that. But in point of fact, you must really look, really drink, really smoke, and really be in the moment. The moment-to-moment reality. Moment-to-moment reality. And never preconceive any ideas about what the, how the scene should turn out or whatever. And that's so hard as an actor not to preconceive things. Here's David Dalton, author of the unequal Dean biography, James Dean, The Mutant King. There's... Um Many people who've never seen a movie of James Dean that idolize him simply from the posters. The, you know, that with him slouching against the wall, the red jacket, the cigarette dangling. It's, it's a hieroglyphic of uh, teen angst that is just so perfect that really nobody has replaced it. John Lennon once said, without Jimmy Dean, the Beatles would never have existed. Here's film critic Leonard Maltin. I can't think of another actor who achieved stardom so quickly, who held it for such a short time, and then kept it for such a long time. James Dean became a star in one calendar year, and then left us. But he's still being talked about, he's still being revered, he's still being iconized. 40 years later. I don't think there's another example like it in the entire history of movies. And there isn't. And so let's end with a performance by James Dean in East of Eden. It's one of the final scenes in the movie. And James Dean is, he's on a swing in front of the house and out comes Raymond Massey, his father. And well, his brother's gone and dad's wanting to know what happened. And again, East of Eden is just a metaphor for the Cain and Abel story, let's take a listen to what made James Dean, James Dean. Where's Aaron? I don't know. Oh, my brother's keeper. Where did you go? For a ride. What did you quarrel about? You. You're angry about the money. No, I'm not angry. I like it. I think it's great. I'm going to go away. I'm going to take that money with me. I think I'll start me a little business. Just like my mother did. What do you know about your mother? I know where she is. I know what she is, and I know why she left you. You couldn't stand it. I know why you didn't love me. Because I'm like my mother, and you never forgave yourself for having loved her. Tonight I even tried to buy your love. But now I don't want it anymore. I can't use it anymore. Carl, don't talk to your father like that. I don't want any kind of love anymore. It doesn't pay off. I don't want any kind of love anymore. It doesn't pay off. And James Dean, short life, a dynamic life. Nobody changed acting more than Dean in the American cinema, in American acting. Look at Marlon Brando's work. Straight up to the current cast of stars. It all comes from him. Every bit of it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of James Dean. Born on this day in history in 1931. As always, all of our This Days in History are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to John Williams on the piano right now, born on this day in history in 1932. He's an American composer, conductor, and pianist, and you're about to hear one heck of a story this hour. He's a giant, a name you may not know, but my goodness, you know his work. And you're really going to know his work and him and his life story when we're done here. With a career spanning over six decades, he has composed some of the most popular and recognizable film scores in cinematic history. To many of the highest grossing films of all time, including Jaws, the Star Wars series, Superman, E.T., Indiana Jones series, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, and the first three Harry Potter films. Williams has been associated with director Steven Spielberg since 1974, composing music for all but two of his feature films. Other notable works by Williams include theme music for the Olympic Games. That's enough right there for a career, don't you think? NBC Sunday Night Football, The Mission theme used by NBC News, the television series Lost in Space and Land of the Giants, and the incidental music for the first season of Gilligan's Island. Williams has composed numerous classical Williams has composed numerous classical concerti and other works for orchestral ensembles and solo instruments too. He served as the Boston Pops principal conductor from 1980 to 1993 and is now the orchestra's laureate conductor. John Williams has been nominated for 50 Academy Awards, winning five, six Emmy Awards, winning three, 25 Golden Globe Awards, winning four, 66 Grammys, winning 22. With 50 Oscar nominations, Williams currently holds the record for the most Oscar nominations for a living person and is the second most nominated person in Academy Award history behind, well, a little guy named Walt Disney with 59. 45 of Williams' Oscar nominations are for Best Original Score, five are for Best Original Song. He won four Oscars for Best Original Score and one for Best Scoring, Adaption, and Original Song Score. And just listen to that theme from Star Wars.
And if that doesn't take you to another galaxy far, far away, you might want to check your pulse. In 2005, the American Film Institute selected Williams' score to 1977 Star Wars as the greatest American film score of all time. The soundtrack to Star Wars was preserved by the Library of Congress and to the National Recording Registry for being, quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Williams was inducted into the Hollywood Bowls Hall of Fame in 2000 and was a recipient of the Kennedy Center Honors in 2004 and the AFI Life Achievement Award in 2016. He composed the score for eight movies in the top 20 highest-grossing movies in U.S. box office history. That's just crazy. Here's Steven Spielberg honoring John Williams from the Kennedy Center Awards in 2004. Well, it's a great honor to be here to uh, stand in the long shadow that John Williams cast and attempt to shed some light on it. John Williams reinterprets our films with a musical narrative that makes our hearts pound during action cliffhanger scenes, gets the audience to scream when we were hoping they would do so, and pushes that same audience from the brink to breaking out into applause. It's not Hollywood he writes for. He writes for all of you. Did you ever hear a seven-year-old hum the first nine notes from Darth Vader's theme? <laughs> or see a bunch of kids jumping into a swimming pool going, da-da-dun, da-da-dun, dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun. The day that John called me over to his house, he was very pleased because he had just completed the score for Jaws, and he wanted to play some of the main themes on the piano. And I sat next to him, and he just used four fingers, and he began going, da, 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 that was it. And I said, that's all? <laughs> he, he said, I really think that's all you need. <laughs> I think John Williams is a national treasure. He's as American as apple pie and President Bush's mom. And John, you're the greatest thing that has ever happened to my career. And for that, I want to thank you. And I congratulate you for this exceptional honor. And imagine hearing those words from someone like Steven Spielberg. It's pretty heady. And by the way, we know this about Bernard Herrmann's very simple soundtrack to Psycho. The same thing, well, Hitchcock probably would have said, is that all? Those few violins going back and forth? And it makes Jaws. I mean, that soundtrack makes the suspense. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about this remarkable life. We're going to take you from his birth in Floral Park, New York, straight up to the present. Because, well, he's still doing what he does. We're going to go out with the Jaws soundtrack. More on the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932.
This is Our American Stories. You're listening to John Williams' score in Jurassic Park. And for the hour, we're going to spend time with John, his life. Born on this day in history in 1932, Greg, during the break, was making a, a comment that modern classical music is the scores to movies because the postmodernist stuff that's in concert halls, no one wants to listen to. And so this is our classical music, and John Williams, well, there's no one better at it. Williams was born on February 8th, 1932, in Floral Park, New York, the son of Esther and Johnny Williams. Here, he talks about his early life and one of the most profound moments that he experienced as a child. At home, there was always music in the house because my father was a professional musician, and he played the drums and percussion in radio orchestras in the 1930s and 40s, way back then. And we had a piano in the living room on which I practiced every day because he insisted that I have piano lessons. But we also had a basement in our house where there was another piano, a little older piano, which is where my brother, who played the drums, or the neighborhood kids who played the clarinet and the trumpet would come. We wouldn't go to the living room. My, my mother might not appreciate it. We had our little jam session, so to speak, in the basement of the house. One of the most profound experiences that I had as a child was playing the piano, and my little neighbor friend had a trumpet, and to discover when he played the trumpet, some of you may know that a trumpet, well, there are many keys, but usually the key of B-flat. So to play my piano music with me, I had to write the note, once get a sheet of music paper, and write for the trumpet the notes one step higher so that I could play along with him. And when that happened, that seemed like a miracle to me, <laughs> that actually something I'd put down with my hand, even though it was my own music, it made it possible for us to play together. The fun of that and the sense of discovery of, of, of the, that one could adjust, manipulate, arrange music, and then have the joy of doing it with someone else was, I think, one of the most profound experiences I had as a young person studying music. And a series of moments where I discovered, I'll use the word again, the joy of making music together. Already an aspiring musician at such a young age, Williams would eventually begin reading about orchestration. I didn't have an idea in my mind until well into my teenage years that one could be a composer professionally. I didn't, I didn't have that idea. But by the time I was in high school, I was able to, as we'd say, orchestrate, to arrange music for orchestra. We had a student orchestra. The reason for that was because my father had books on theory and orchestration in the house that I used to love to read and try to understand. And he would explain to me a little bit. Later on, teachers did also. John Williams then began to apply his craft in Hollywood. Let's hear him tell that story. The first work that I did in the Hollywood film studios was as a pianist. Uh, I, they, they, in, the, in the old Columbia studios where they had a contract orchestra, there was an opening position for piano, which I auditioned for, and I was hired by the then music director, Morris Stoloff, who the young people will not remember. So that meant that every day, Monday through Friday, four or five days a week, I sat in the orchestra at Columbia Studios playing under Mr. Stoloff's direction and watching him underscore films that, about westerns or or love stories, or scary films, or comedies, or whatever, and uh, had a first-hand view as an orchestra member of how this process of creating and, and, and fitting music to film went. 
And two or three years into my time at, at the orchestra there, the same gentleman asked, said, would you, would you prepare the music for one scene for next week's recording? So I did one scene for next week's recording, and apparently worked out well enough <laughs> that he said, you do two scenes for us, we're a little short this week, maybe three, a month <laughs> later. So it was a very in series of steps, or increments, if you like to say. I progressed from the piano bench of sitting in the orchestra and playing the piano to a young man sitting not far from the music library writing the music for next Tuesday's recording. So what's the biggest challenge for John Williams? He says writing themes like the Imperial March for Darth Vader. The themes in these movies, I think for me at least, are the most difficult things to write. But I will look at a film like Star Wars, for example, and there'll be a character. There is Darth Vader. We've never seen him before with that helmet that's on there. And he's terrifying. And I try to analyze what this character is. This is somebody who's imperious, meaning great authority and great power. And also frightening in many ways. And also has a military bearing about him. Those qualities are starting points for me. To, to develop musical phrases that would fit this kind of a character. So I, I think that the trick is to think about the person we're writing for, try to get inside that person to the, to the qualities and characteristics that he or she shows us and try to describe that musically. And, and that's the, the, probably for me the biggest challenge and the, and the most difficult thing to get just right. The Imperial March is first heard in The Empire Strikes Back in low piccolos as the Galactic Empire sends probe droids across the galaxy in search of Luke Skywalker. Its major opening occurs as Star Destroyers amass, and Darth Vader is first presented in the film. Let's take a minute to just listen to the rest of The Imperial March by John Williams.
soundtrack for Star Wars won an Academy Award for Best Original Score in 1977, along with a Golden Globe and three Grammys. Here's John Williams describing the difference between composing music for film and composing for a live audience. When we're writing music for film, or preparing any part of the film, we need to think that probably the audience is going to see and hear this once. They will maybe do, see it repeatedly, and that's what people usually do. But unless, they, unless the first impression is a good impression, I think mm-hmm. the, the assumption that we're going to see and hear it once is a, is a fair one. Also, the complication with music is that, in the, unlike a concert where there's only music that we hear, in the film we hear the music, we hear the sound of the spaceship, we hear the sound of the guns, the sound of the dialogue. So we have to understand the music is part of a, a, a whole that if we try, as a composer, if I try to take the whole of everyone's attention the way I would in a concert hall, it won't succeed. We have to find our place in the hierarchy or in the level of where the dialogue, the words go, the sound effects, the explosions and the sword sounds go, and where the music goes. And that's got to be a wedded unity, one thing uh, that that is the object of how we try to make, marry the, the music to the film and when we come back more on the life of john williams born on this day in history in 1932 and we leave you here with the score the soundtrack from superman This is Our American Stories. We're celebrating the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932. And we're listening to him to the fallen from Saving Private Ryan. Let's take a listen.
Williams is often asked what his favorite film score was. Here's his answer. I think for me, the music for E.T., the combination of that film with that particular score, I think in, in its entirety, for me personally, I think is the one that we got, that came closest to being ideally right in every scene. Here's that theme from E.T. The score was the fourth in history to accomplish the feat of winning the Academy Award, Golden Globe, Grammy, and BAFTA. The two previous were Star Wars and Jaws. They were also composed by Williams, who remains the only person to have won all awards for the same score more than once. To date, a total of only six scores have won all four awards. Sometimes it can be difficult to get a piece of music to fit properly into any given scene. Here, John Williams tells a story about the difficulty of getting this music to fit the ending scene of E.T. I did have an experience with Steven Spielberg at the end of E.T. where music was about 10 minutes for the last reel. Children are chasing, uh, escaping from police and so on very quickly. And... I, I made several takes and I could not make it fit the film. So finally, Stephen said, "We'll turn the film off. We just play the music the way you want to play it, and I will re-edit the film to it." Which he did. I wish I could do it all the time. It would make life, <laughs> make life a lot easier. But I also, when I look at that scene now, I think some, there's something sort of operatic about the way the orchestra was playing it, mm-hmm. that w- they were let free to go. Free they weren't watching me to what's coming the next cue. We would just play the, you know. And I think it gave some luft, lift to the, to the final scene. The performance of the orchestra animates the f- film in a way that film cannot live without music. It's true. It really cannot. We try. You take the film away and it looks dead, whatever. The, the, mm-hmm. I think it's safe and correct to say that. And by the way, what insight Spielberg had. I mean, how many directors would say, well, let's just reshoot what I shot. Your music's more important. What insight. By the way, John Williams enjoys what he does, and he has some great advice for young people. One of my great good fortunes is that work for me is fun, and it's what I do every day. I write something every day, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Just the habit, the practice of truly six and a half days a week, something goes on paper. You know what I would say to young people is really what I say to myself. I mean, if you can, if you can find the joy in music... And find, first of all, life is a great gift. Life itself is just that we're here and we think and we can share things and see what's beautiful, hear what's beautiful. Music, first among all of the sounds, we think. Some of us musicians do. But find the joy in music. Find the joy in life. Find the joy in each other. Find the joy in work. Uh, and, and life becomes really very, very beautiful that way. I think go out and find the joy. Great advice. Williams loves young people, and young people, well, they love him too. Especially these two kids who made a spontaneous decision to set up and play the Star Wars theme in front of John Williams' house on July of 2016, with a high part played by 13-year-old trumpeter Bryce Hayashi and the lower flugelhorn part played by Michael Miller. John Williams, the master himself, comes out to greet the kids and the mom who was running the camera. 
By the way, the John Williams didn't call security, that he came out and greeted these these two young people. What a gift itself, and what a person. And it just tells you a lot about his nature and his character. I mean, the last thing necessarily he might want is, you know, random musicians coming in front of his house. But he's touched, actually. He knows what this took. He knows it was an offering. And boy, you want to talk about the word joy? There it is, folks. That's it. Here, John Williams explains the process of preparing to write a score for a movie. If I don't read a script, I'm very happy because I look at this director's cut, I don't know what's happening next, and I'm bored, or I'm excited, and I need to have that memory when I write. I think this is maybe a boring moment. Maybe I can do something in the sound of this thing and improve the situation. So for me, the first thing is the rhythm of the film. And then with character and texture and style and all the other endless elements that go into it. But a director's cut is an invaluable thing for me. It'd be wonderful if we hear some music and we say, it could, only be, it could be only belong to that film. It's not always possible to get that kind of uh, curve in the sculpture, you know, but we try. And try he did and try he does. When we come back, more on the life of John Williams, born on this day in history, in 1932, as always, all of our This Days in History are, bo- are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu to see all of their great courses that are available online for free. There are 16 of them in total. We're closing this segment out with John Williams' soundtrack and score from Born on the 4th of July. And by the way, anyone who thought that that Tom Cruise couldn't act. This was one heck of a piece of acting by Tom Cruise, too.
This is Our American Stories for the hour, the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932, nominated for 50 Academy Awards. And you're listening to the soundtrack, The Close Encounters of a Third Kind. wrote the score for Schindler's List. The album won the Academy Award for Best Original Score, the BAFTA Award for Best Film Music, and the Grammy Award for Best Score Soundtrack for Visual Media. It also received a Golden Globe Award nomination for the Best Original Score. Here, Williams talks about working with violin player Itzhak Perlman. Steven Spielberg made a beautiful movie, which most people will remember. And in one of the early scripts, it called for a violinist to play a Jewish gentleman entertaining the German officers in, in an officers' club. And the scene, alas, was not used. But because it was part of the original plan, I said to Stephen, we have to have a violinist to do this thing. So I asked Itzhak Perlman if he would come and do it, and he said yes. Knowing I was writing these notes for Itzhak Perlman, knowing his sound, I, it really led me, I think, where I hoped where I needed to go. I had known him for 20 years or more. Itzhak, every time I saw him, this is before the film, he would say, John, when are you going to have a film that I can play the violin? <laughs> every time I see him. So finally, this came along, listen, I called up and I said, Itzhak, I have a film for, that you will be interested in. Oh, I don't know. I don't think I want to do a film. <laughs> so, yeah. I said, I think you should look at this thing. Maybe it's exactly. something you should want to do. He came crazy. So he came up to Boston. We were called Symphony Hall with the orchestra there. And he looked a little bit of the film. And he just, he couldn't, it's so emotional, some of the scenes in there. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to look at it to rehearse. He said, we'll just play. I don't want to see it. No. He brought his great art to the film. And uh, which embraces his feeling, his history, his all of, all of it, you know. So he is a, it is the film, it is the music, it is his voice. That um, suggests so much rich history of all of, the, all of the story. Let's take a minute to listen to the music from Schindler's List.
Another major film score by the great John Williams that cannot go without mention is the theme from the Indiana Jones series. Here's Steven Spielberg and John Williams talking about the production of this iconic theme. Too heavy. heavy. Too heavy. Yeah. Too heavy, yeah. Let me let me just uh, okay. react to what we've heard. John, you know, he he actually written two Raiders themes. He had written. Play that for me. Which I freaked out over. I loved it so much. Then he said, and here's another possible Raiders score. Uh, Raiders main theme, and he played. And, and so he had had two choices, and I think my only input was to say, can't you use both? And he did. He made the latter the bridge, and he made the former the main theme. That's a perfect example of the kind of collaboration that we have, we have done with these things. Interesting about that. Da, 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 dee, da, da, da. A very simple little sequence of notes. But I spend more time on those little bits of musical grammar to get them just right so that they seem inevitable seemed like they've always been there, they're so simple. And I don't know how many permutations I will go through with a six-note motif like that, one note down, one note up, and spend a lot of time on these little simplicities, which are often the hardest things to capture, I think, for anybody. John Williams won the 44th Annual American Film Institute Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. During his acceptance speech, he had this to say about music and film. Music is like architecture, sculpture, and so on, thousands of years old. And film is the new kid on the block, 100 years barely. And though we will watch its evolution carefully, side by side with the art of music, I am enormously grateful, as all composers are, to film for giving us the broadest possible audience worldwide that any composer has ever enjoyed. I, uh, I'm certain that Beethoven would have shunned it but Wagner would have had his own studio out there in Burbank with a, with a huge water tank with a W on it. Williams then thanked George Lucas. George Lucas. George Lucas, certainly a genius. George, you've given me the greatest opportunity in the broadest canvas to write themes for characters. Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Anakin, Luke and Leia, The Force, and so on. For the first film, George, I even wrote, you'll remember, a quite heated love theme with, with, a, with a melody and a development section and a torrid climax, thinking that Luke and Leia were lovers. <laughs> and, and I found out two years later that they were brother and sister. And then he gave thanks to a colleague director Steven Spielberg, who he'd worked with since 1974, again, composing music for all but two of Spielberg's feature films. Steven and I have worked together for I don't know, 43 or 4 years, something amazing. And it's like a perfect marriage, you know, we really have never had an argument of any kind. And it is a testament to this man's humanity and his loyalty and his patience and his very good taste. (laughs) Williams then shares a story about working with Spielberg on the soundtrack 
of Schindler's List. I have a favorite Steven Spielberg story that I want to share with you. And that has to do with the film Schindler's List, which you will all remember. And Stephen came back with his film to show me the first cut, as he always does. And we went to his projection room, and the purpose of this was to see the film and then discuss the music for the film. And you'll remember the film. It's the story of Oskar Schindler, who's a German civilian who protected and employed potential victims for the Holocaust. Powerful masterpiece of a film. And the film ends in the state of Israel, you remember, and the survivors and their children go to the graveside of Oskar Schindler to place stones on the graveside to honor the memory of, of Oskar Schindler. And the lights came up and the film was over and it was time for Stephen and me to begin to talk about the role of the music. And I was so overwhelmed by the film, I really could not speak. And I went out and walked around the building for a few minutes to gather myself and came back in to start the meeting with Stephen. And I said, Stephen, this is truly a great film. And you need a better composer than I am for this film. And he said very sweetly, I know, but they're all dead. (laughs) (laughs) And there you have it. The life of John Williams. And really, 55 Academy Award nominations. Only Walt Disney had more at 59. And my goodness, the numbers. Five Oscars, three Emmys. 66 Grammy Awards, and he won 22 of them. And so we end as we begin the soundtrack from Star Wars. This is Our American Stories, the life of John Williams, brought to us, as always, by our friends at Hillsdale College. <laughs> 